0: This is, Part 1, Volume 1, of the New and Complete Newgate Calendar. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the Public Domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The selections on this recording of William Jackson's The New and Complete Newgate Calendar, are read and chosen by Roy Schreiber. INTRODUCTION The wisest men, both in ancient and modern times, have agreed that nothing leaves so strong an impression on the human mind, as a recital of those crimes, for which many have forfeited their lives to the injured laws of their country. Such examples are set up as marks of the frailty of human nature, and may serve to teach us, that let our station be whatever it will, we are not beyond the reach of temptation. And unless we keep the fear of God constantly before us, attending to our duty as the allurements to vice will become so strong, that we may be led gradually to commit the most odious crimes, and end our lives with shame and infamy. The many atrocious offences, which are daily perpetrated in different parts of the Kingdom, in defiance of the Laws, call for a publication of this kind to put private persons on their guard against the designing cheat and the more open and daring robber in former times one notorious act of shocking delinquency was sufficient to furnish matter of wonder to the public for a long time but of late years vice has made such a bold and daring strides that one act of enormity, is swallowed up in another. And ere we cease our surprise at the first, it is re-excited by some newer and more atrocious villainy. New laws, new regulations, new modes of punishment have been devised, but almost in vain. Something seems wanting, which may tend rather to prevent the offence, than punish the offenders. At present, nothing promises, so fair to operate as a preventative remedy against felonious acts, as the frequent and careful perusal of the modes by which, similar acts of felony have been perpetrated, and the horrid effects that have followed such perpetrations. The dissipation of this nation has multiplied the number of crimes, and occasioned new statutes to be framed for putting a stop to the growing evil because, such striking incidents have happened in the course of the present century, as were not known, nor even thought of, for many years before. The multitude of places set apart for the entertainment of the gay and the thoughtless, has contributed towards the ruin of many youth of both sexes. For pleasure is of so bewitching a nature, that in order to gratify a sensual passion, we are often led to commit the greatest crimes. Hence the ruin of many youth who, had it not been for the alluring temptations to vice, might have lived to the inexpressible joy of their relations, and been an honour and an ornament to their country. But it is not youth alone that are blamable; For many who have lived to advanced years, are either destitute of virtuous principles, or so little masters of their natural tempers, that they are often hurried both into excesses and crimes, without reflecting on the fatal consequences. To prevent our fellow subjects from committing crimes, and to promote their interest and honour in the world, this work is offered to the public, on a plan entirely new, and more comprehensive, than any ever published on the same subject for a great variety of authors both printed and in manuscript have been selected the lives of the most notorious offenders that have suffered from the year 1700 to the present time in all the works of this nature that we have seen the materials are so jumbled together without order or method that the readers are disgusted rather than entertained or instructed instead therefore of repeating the dull, formal repetitions, used on trials, we have thrown the whole, into the form of a narrative, and at the end of each life, deduced such practical inferences, as cannot fail to make a lasting impression, on the minds of our readers. Every difficult term is likewise explained, without interrupting the narrative. And as great pains have been taken, to make this work acceptable to the public, the author doubts not but he shall receive the warmest approbation this entire new work is therefore offered not only as an object of curiosity and entertainment but as a publication of real and substantial use to guard the mind by striking reflections on the conduct of those unhappy wretches who have fallen sacrifice to the injured laws of their country from the allurements of VICE, and the paths that lead to Destruction. It is extremely natural to wish for the approbation of the public, but, however anxious we may be for that, yet we desire it no further than the merits of this performance shall entitle us. Conscious that nothing has been neglected by the authors, they doubt not, but those of discernment and sensibility, will GIVE IT THE PREFERENCE TO ALL BOOKS OF THE SAME SUBJECT, YET EVER OFFERED TO THE PUBLIC, FOR WHOSE BENEFIT IT HAS BEEN UNDERTAKEN. AND PARENTS AND GUARDIANS WILL FIND IT ONE OF THE MOST useful BOOKS TO BE PUT INTO THE HANDS OF THE RISING GENERATION, BEFORE THEIR TENDER MINDS HAVE BEEN LED astray FROM THE PRACTICE OF VIRTUE. IT WILL ALSO BECOME EXTREMELY useful FOR FAMILIES, and be a fund of entertainment as well as instruction for those who have a few leisure hours to spend in the evening or such as go on long voyages to sea those who live in the country and at a distance from large towns will find it very useful as a work of entertainment and although the greatest number of crimes are generally committed near the metropolis yet the reader will see we have given the lives of the most notorious offenders throughout every part of england wales and scotland with as many in ireland as we could procure authentic accounts of so that this work is calculated for the use and advantage of all our fellow subjects introduction signed by w jackson circumstantial account of the trials declarations, and executions, of Michael Van Bergen, Catherine Van Bergen, and Gerard Dromulus, of EAST Smithfield, for the murder of Oliver Norris. The wretched subjects of this narrative, were natives of Holland. But having settled in England, Michael Van Bergen and his wife, kept a public house near EAST Smithfield, and Dromulus acted as their servant. One Norris, a country gentleman, who lodged at an inn near Aldgate, went into the house of Van Bergen about eight o'clock in the evening, and continued to drink there till about eleven. Finding himself rather intoxicated, he desired the maid-servant to call a coach to carry him home. As she was going to do so, her mistress whispered to her, and bid her return in a little time, and say that a coach was not to be procured. These directions being observed, Norris, on the Maid's return, resolved to go without a coach, and accordingly, he took his leave of the family. But he had not gone far before he discovered, that he had been robbed of a purse containing a sum of money. Whereupon he returned, and charged Van Bergen and his wife, with having been guilty of the robbery. This they positively denied, and threatened to turn him out of the house. But he refused to go, and resolutely went into a room where the cloth had been laid for supper. At this time, Dromulus entered the room, and treating Mr. Norris in a very cavalier manner, the latter resented the insult, till a perfect quarrel ensued. At this juncture, Van Bergen seized a poker, with which he fractured Mr. Norris's skull, and in the meantime, Dromulus stabbed him in different parts of his body, Mrs. Van Bergen being present during the perpetuation of this horrid act. When Mr. Norris was dead, they stripped him of his coat, waistcoat, hat, wig, and etc., and then Van Bergen and Dromulus carried the body and threw it into a ditch which communicated with the Thames. In the meantime, Mrs. Van Bergen Wash the blood of the deceased, from the floor of the room. The clothes which had been stripped from the deceased, were put up in a hamper, and committed to the care of Dromulus, who took a boat, and carried them over to Rothereth, where he employed the watermen to carry the hamper to the lodgings, which he had taken, and in which he proposed to remain, until he could find a favourable opportunity of embarking for Holland. The next morning, at low water, the body of a gentleman was found, and several of the neighbours went to take a view of it, and endeavoured to try, if they could trace any blood to the place where the murder might have been committed. But not succeeding in this, some of them, who were up very early in the morning, recollected that they had seen Van Bergen and Dromulus coming almost from the spot where the body was found, and remarked that a light had been carried, backwards and forwards, in Van Bergen's house. Upon this, the house was searched, but no discovery was made, except that a little blood was found behind the door of a room, which appeared to have been lately mopped. Inquiry was made after Dromulus, but Van Bergen and his wife would give no other account than that he had left their service, on which they were taken into custody with the maid servant, who was the principal evidence, against them. At this juncture, the waterman who had carried Dromulus to Rothereth, and who had known him very well, appeared, and was likewise, taken into custody. On the trial, all the circumstances above mentioned, appeared so striking to the jury, that they did not hesitate to find the prisoners guilty, and accordingly, they received sentence of death. The prisoners were tried by a jury of half-englishmen and half-foreigners. A generous and candid mode of proceeding, peculiar to the criminal courts of this country. Dromulus, after condemnation, and a short time before the day of execution, assured the ordinary of Newgate, that the murder was committed by himself, and was preceded and followed by these circumstances. That, Mr. Norris, being very much in liquor, and desirous of going to his inn, Mr. Van Bergen directed him to attend him thither. That, soon after they left the house, Norris went into a broken building, to ease himself. Where, using opprobrious language to Dromulus, and attempting to draw his sword, he wrested it from his hand, and stabbed him with it in several places. That being done, Norris groaned very much, and Dromulus, hearing a watchman coming, and fearing a discovery, drew a knife, and cut his throat, and thereby put an end to his life. In answer to this it was said, that the story was altogether improbable. For if Mr. Norris had been killed in the manner above mentioned, some blood would have been found on the spot, and there would have been holes in his clothes from the stabbing neither of which, was the case. Still, however, Dromulus, persisted in his declaration, with a view to save the life of his mistress, with whom he was thought, to have had a criminal connection. And indeed, he confessed that he had been too familiar with this woman. Mr. and Mrs. Van Burgen were attended at the place of execution, by some Divines of their own country, as well as English clergymen and desired the prayers of all of them. Mr. Van Bergen, unable to speak intelligibly in English, conversed in Latin, a circumstance from which it may be inferred, that he had been educated in a style superior to the rank in life, which he had lately held. He said that the murder was not committed in his house, and that he knew no more of it, than that Dromulus came to him while he lay in bed, informed him, that he had wounded the gentleman, and begged him to aid his escape. But that when he knew Mr. Norris was murdered, he offered money to some persons to pursue the murderer. But this circumstance, which might have been favourable to him, was not proved on his trial. Mrs. Van Burgen, also solemnly declared, that she knew nothing of the murder till after it was perpetrated, which was not in their house that Dromulus, coming into the chamber, and saying he had murdered the gentleman, she went for the hamper to hold the bloody clothes and assisted Dromulus in his escape. A circumstance which would not be deemed criminal in her country. This was, however, an artful plea, for in Holland, accessories before or after the fact are accounted as principles. Dromulus, when at the place of execution, persisted in his former tale, but desired the prayers of the surrounding multitude, whom he warned to beware of indulgence in violent passions, to which he then fell an untimely sacrifice. These criminals were executed, near Hartshorn Brewhouse, East Smithfield, being the nearest convenient spot, to the place where the murder was committed on the 10th of July, in the year 1700. The men were hung in chains, between bow and mile end, but the woman was buried. Full account of the life, intrigues and crimes and etc., of George Caudell, who is executed at Stafford, for the murder of Elizabeth Price, his mistress. George Caudell was a native of the town of Bloomsgrove in Worcestershire, at which place he was articled to an apothecary with whom he served his time and then repaired to London, where he walked to several of the hospitals to give him an insight into the art of surgery, having obtained a tolerable proficiency therein, he retired from London and went to Worcester, where he lived with Mr. Randall, a capital surgeon of that city. And, in this situation, he was equally admired for the depth of his abilities and the amiableness of his temper. Here he married the daughter of Mr. Randall, who died in labour of her first child. After this melancholy event, he went to reside at Lichfield and continued upwards of two years with Mr. Dean, a surgeon of that place. During his residence here, he courted the daughter of that gentleman, to whom he probably would have soon been married, but for the commission of the following crime that cost him his life. A young lady named Elizabeth Price, who had been debauched by an officer in the army, lived near Mr. Caudell's place of residence, and, after her misfortune, supported herself by her skill in needlework. Caudell, becoming acquainted with her, a considerable degree of intimacy subsisted between them, and Miss Price, degraded as she was by the unfortunate step she had taken, still thought herself an equal match for one of Mr. Caudell's rank of life. This young lady now informed Caudell that a pregnancy was the consequence of their connection and repeatedly urged him to marry her to prevent her being a second time disgraced in the eyes of the public. Mr. Cardell resisted her importunities for a considerable time. At last, Miss Price heard of his paying his address to Miss Dean, on which, she became more importunate than ever, and threatened that if he refused to consent to wed her, she would put an end to all his projects with that young lady by discovering everything that had passed between them. It was on this unhappy occasion that Caudell formed the horrid resolution of murdering Miss Price. For he could neither bear the thought of forfeiting the esteem of a woman he had courted, nor of marrying her who had granted the last favour to at least one other man as well as himself. This dreadful scheme, having entered his head, he called on Miss Price, on a saturday evening, and requested that she should walk in the fields with him, on the afternoon of the following day, in order to adjust the plan of their intended marriage. Miss Price, thus deluded, now thought the wound of her reputation would be healed and on the following day, she met him on the road, leading towards Burton-upon-Trent, at a house known by the sign of the Nag's head. Having accompanied her supposed lover into the fields, and walked about till towards evening, they then sat down under a hedge, where having spent some time in conversation, he pulled out a knife, and cut her throat, and made his escape, but not before, he waited till she was dead. Caudel, however, in the distraction of his mind, left behind him the knife with which he had perpetrated the deed, together with his case of instruments. When he came home, it was observed, that he appeared exceedingly confused, though the reason of the perturbation of his mind, could not even be guessed at. On the following morning, Miss Price being found murdered in the field, great numbers of people went to take a view of the body, among whom, was the woman of the house where she lodged, who recollected, that she had said, she was going to walk with Mr. Caudell. On which, the instruments were examined, and known to have belonged to him. Whereupon, he was taken into custody, and committed to the jail at Stafford. And soon afterwards, TRIED, HE WAS FOUND GUILTY, CONDEMNED, AND EXECUTED AT STAFFORD ON the 21st of July, 1700. Particulars of the Life, Atheism, and remarkable execution of the Reverend Thomas Hunter, at Edinburgh, for the murder of his two young pupils. This atrocious offender, was born in the county of Fife, and was the son of a rich farmer, who sent him to the university of st andrew for education when young hunter acquired a good share of classical learning and began to prosecute his studies in divinity with no small degree of success several of the younger clergymen in scotland act as tutors to wealthy and distinguished families till the proper period arrives for their entering into orders which they never do till they obtain a benefice while in this rank of life, they bear the name of chaplains. And in this station, Hunter lived about two years in the house of Mr. Gordon, a very eminent merchant, and one of the bailies of Edinburgh, which is a rank equal to that of aldermen of London. Mr. Gordon's family, consisted of himself, his lady, two sons and a daughter. A young woman, who attended mrs. Gordon, and her daughter, the malefactor in question, some clerks, and menial servants. To the care of Hunter was committed the education of the two sons, and for a considerable time, he discharged his duty in a manner highly satisfactory to the parents, who considered him as a youth of superior genius, and great goodness of heart. But it happened that a connexion took place between hunter and the young woman above mentioned, which soon increased to a criminal degree of familiarity. However, the correspondence between them maintained for a considerable time, during which the family was totally ignorant of their affair. These lovers had gone undetected so long, that they grew daily less cautious, than at the commencement of their amour, and on a particular day when Mr. and Mrs. Gordon were on a visit, Hunter and his girl met in their chamber as usual. But, having been so incautious as not to make their door fast, the children went into the room and found them in such a situation as could not admit any doubt of the nature of their intercourse. No suspicion was entertained, that the children would mention to their parents, what had happened, the eldest boy being not quite ten years of age. So that the guilty lovers had not the least idea that a discovery would ensue. But when the children were at supper with their parents, they disclosed so much as left no room to doubt of what had happened. Hereupon, the female servant was directed to quit the house on the following day. But, Hunter was continued in the family, after making a proper apology for the crime of which he had been guilty. Attributing it to the thoughtlessness of youth, and promising never to offend in the same way again. Hunter from this period entertained the most inveterate hatred of all the children on whom he determined, in his own mind, to wreak the most diabolical vengeance. Nothing less than murder was his intention. And it was a considerable time, after he had formed this hard plan, before he had an opportunity of carrying it into execution. Which he at length, in a great degree effected, as will be seen hereafter. Whenever it was a fine day, he was accustomed to walk in the fields with his pupils for an hour before dinner. And in in these excursions, the young lady generally attended her brothers. At the period immediately preceding the commission of the fatal fact, Mr. Gordon and his family were at their country retreat near edinburgh, and having received an invitation to dine in that city, he and his lady proposed to go thither, about the time that hunter usually took his noontide walk with the children mrs hunter was very anxious for all the children to accompany them on this visit but this was strenuously opposed by her husband who would consent that only the little girl should attend them by this circumstance hunter's intention of murdering all three children was frustrated but he held his resolution of destroying the boys, while they were yet in his power. With this view, he took them into the fields, and sat down as if to repose himself on the grass. This event took place, soon after the middle of the month of August, and Hunter was preparing his knife, to put a period to the lives of the children, at the very moment they were busied in catching butterflies and gathering wild flowers. Having sharpened his knife, he called the lads to him, and, having reprimanded them for acquainting their father and mother of the scene to which they had been witnessed, he said that he would immediately put them to death, terrified by this threat. The children ran from him, but he immediately followed and brought them back. He then placed his knee on the body of the one while he cut the throat of the other with his penknife then treated the second in the same inhuman manner that he had done the first these horrid murders were committed within half a mile of the castle of edinburgh and as the deeds were perpetrated in the middle of the day and in open fields it would have been very wonderful indeed if the murderer had not been immediately taken into custody At the time of the murder, it happened that a gentleman was walking on Castle Hill of Edinburgh, who had a tolerably perfect view of what passed. Alarmed by the incident, the gentleman called some people, who ran with him to the place where the children were lying dead. But by this time the murderer had advanced towards a river, with a view to drown himself. Those who pursued, came up with him just as he reached the brink of the river and his person being immediately known to them, a messenger was instantly dispatched to Mr. and Mrs. Gordon, who were at that moment going to dinner with their friend, to inform them of the horrid deed that had been perpetrated by this wicked man. Language is too weak to describe the effects resulting from the communication of this dreadful news. The astonishment of the afflicted father, the Agony of the Mother's Grief, may possibly be conceived, though it cannot be painted. Mr. Hunter being now in Custody, it is required that we give an account of the proceedings against him, and of the punishment that followed his offense. According to an old Scottish law, it is decreed that, QUOTE, If a murderer should be taken, with the blood of the murdered person on his clothes he should be prosecuted in the sheriff's court and executed within 3 days after the commission of the fact End quote. it was not common to execute this sentence with rigor but the offender in question had been guilty of crimes of so aggravated a nature that it was not thought proper to remit anything of the utmost severity of the law The prisoner was therefore committed to jail, and chained down to the floor all night. And on the following day, the sheriff issued his precept, for the jury to meet. And in consequence of their verdict, Hunter was brought to his trial, when he pleaded guilty. And added to the offence he had already committed, the horrid crime of declaring, that he lamented only, not having murdered Mr. Gordon's daughter as well as his sons. The sheriff now passed sentence on the convict, which was, to the following purpose, that, QUOTE, On the following day, he should be executed on a gibbet erected for that purpose, on the spot where he had committed the murders, but that, previous to his execution, his right hand should be cut off with a hatchet, near the wrist. Then, he should be drawn up, to the gibbet, by a rope, and, when he was dead, hung in chains, between Edinburgh and Leith, the knife with which he committed the murders, being stuck through his hand, which should be advanced over his head, and fixed therewith to the top of the gibbet." Mr. Hunter was executed in strict conformity to the above sentence, on the 22nd of August, 1700. But, Mr. Gordon, soon afterwards, petitioned the sheriff, that the body might be removed, to a more distant spot, as its hanging on the side of the highway, through which he frequently passed, tended to re his grief. For the occasion, that had first given rise to it. This requisition was immediately complied with, and in a few days, the body was removed to the skirts of a small village near Edinburgh, called Broughton. It is equally true and horrid to relate, that, at the place of execution, Hunter closed his life with the following shocking declaration. There is no God. I do not believe there is any, or if there is, I hold him in defiance. The end of part one, volume one of the new and complete Newgate calendar.